I was listening to some random sermon some years ago. Um, who wants to guess who the preacher was? Anybody? John Piper. John Piper. I was driving down the freeway and, you know, having a good old time with John. And, and I came off the exit. I mean, this is how, this is what a mark this comment left on me. I, I remember exactly where I was. I was coming off the autostrada and I was exiting there in Binasco where Karen and I live. And uh, he said this, six words, and I've, I've never forgotten it. it. It's never left me. It made such a theological mark on me mentally that I never have forgotten it. He says, and Bless and I were talking about this last time you were here, I think, or maybe the time before. I think I actually used this quote. We were talking about uh, missions, I think. He said there are two fundamental tragedies in the cosmos. Do you remember what they are? <laughs> A lot of pressure. No pressure, man. Um, God is being profaned and men are perishing. Okay? God is profaned and men are perishing. And I thought to myself how brilliant that was. Right? In six words... All the tragedies that have ever taken place on the face of the earth are subsumed in these two categories. God is profaned and men are perishing. It takes us right back to the Garden of Eden. At least in my mind it does. Satan told Eve that God wasn't good at all. He told Eve that God was holding out on him or her. Satan told Eve that rebellion and sin was better. Right? These were the lies of Satan. In one very very simple act of disobedience, in one heartbeat of a moment, God was profaned. And man began to perish. One heartbeat of a moment. Millennial later, these two tragedies still reign as the principal tragedies in the created order. As I mentioned to you last week, the sad state of affairs on the planet cannot be laid at God's feet. Why is the world so messed up? You know, my unbelieving neighbors and friends and colleagues uh, and acquaintances, they, they always want to blame God. Well, it's all God's fault. You know, anytime there's a natural calamity, it's God's fault. Where's God? Right? Don't you hear this all the time? But why is the world messed up? We talked a little bit about it last week. Why is the world messed up? Can we lay that at God's feet? What if we just read Genesis 1 and 2 and 3? God put us in paradise, right? With only one prohibition. Why is the world messed up? You tell me. God put us in paradise. You tell me why the world's messed up. God put us in paradise. Why is the world messed up? Pardon me? Someone said something. <laughs> yes, that's right. Because of you. Because of you. And me. And every human being who's ever walked the planet. That's why the world is messed up. You can't lay evil and calamity and death at God's feet. We have to own this for ourselves if in fact we believe the Bible is the Word of God. And we believe that it contains 
the truth. God put us in paradise and God says, it is very good. Romans chapter 5 makes it clear that Adam and Eve sinned and all of mankind sinned in them. It's the doctrine of original sin. All humanity fell in Adam and Eve. And I, I, I hear this a lot too. People hate this doctrine. They hate this biblical truth that somehow I fell in Adam. You know, the, the individual I'm usually talking to says, well, I wasn't even there. Yes, you were there. God says you were there. You were in the loins of Adam. Now, you can argue with God all you want. I don't recommend it because you will lose. God says you were there and I was there. We fell in Adam and Eve. It's the doctrine of original sin. And I have two, two comments to the critics of that biblical truth. One is, as we talked about last week, Biblical truth just is. It doesn't matter if you like it. doesn't matter if you believe it. doesn't matter if you agree with it. doesn't matter if you acknowledge it. Biblical truth just is. It is the truth. It's the truth of God. You don't have to like it. It's still true. You don't have to believe it. It's still true. We talked a lot about that last week. Secondly, of course... We know the doctrine of original sin is false when we find that first human being who does not die. But that human being has not yet been born. That I'm aware of. The human being who does not die. What are the wages of sin? Someone tell me. The wages of sin are death. We're all guilty. We're guilty in Adam and Eve's sin and we're guilty in our own sin. I love to tell people of age, I say, well, you have a problem with the doctrine of original sin, just go look in the mirror. Have you loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Can you say that? Can you actually say that you have? That's the Word of God. That's the law of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you haven't done that, you're guilty too. <laughs> just like I am. So, I think these are important things for us to consider. How many of you know who G.K. Chesterton was? He's a well-known uh, English intellectual in the 20th century. The London Times newspaper posed a question to its readers, and it just said, what's wrong with the world? <laughs> As we've been talking, G.K. Chesterton wrote into the paper and he said, Dear sirs, I am yours truly. Dear sirs, I am, period, yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? You and me and our seven billion uh, friends in the world. It's the clear teaching of the Bible. So Adam and Eve and you and I and all seven billion human beings on the planet, we have profaned God. It's what the Bible says is true about you. You say, Jim, I don't believe that. Well, that's your choice. God gave you a free will. You believe whatever you want to believe. But some things are true, as we talked about last week, whether you believe them or not, particularly if God says them. You have profaned God, and apart from Jesus Christ, you are perishing. 
It's what we talked about last week. Why isn't this church filled up? Was it the week before? I forget. Why isn't this church packed with people trying to get in here to hear the good news of, of Jesus Christ? Why is that? We talked a lot about it. I think it was last week. Why is that so? Because men don't want the truth. <laughs> they don't want it. Really. They don't want it. Unless God is doing that John chapter 6 thing. Unless God is drawing the man. We can't lay evil at God's feet. We have to own that. In Genesis chapter 3, there's just this cascade of breathtaking things that happens. You know, the first thing that happens is the, the paramount stupidity of mankind in rebelling against God. But what's the next thing that happens? And you have to, man, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta let this move your soul. What's the next thing that Adam and Eve hear after the fall? What, what's the first thing that the, the Bible tells us they hear? God is coming through the garden. They hear God walking through the garden in the cool of the day. What's the second thing they hear? Where are you? <laughs> Adam! Wherefore art thou, Adam? The old King James. Where are you? Where were they? Someone tell me. They were all up in the trees, right? <clears throat> Why were they hiding from God? God has been profaned, and now they know they are perishing. Right? They are perishing. This establishes the fact that we see all the way through the Bible, God is the one who seeks. Men do not seek. We've been talking about it the last few weeks. Men do not seek for God. God seeks There's only one thing the Bible ever says God seeks. And it's a breathtaking thing. The God who owns the cosmos, self-sufficient in the triune Godhead, He doesn't need, you know, the Sunday school lesson, the little children's Sunday school lesson, why does God create? He needs a friend. No, that's blasphemy. God doesn't need a friend. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need one thing. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. But God creates. And there's one thing the Bible says God seeks. What is it? I've already alluded to it. This is an easy one. You should get this. What does God seek? Sinners. God seeks one thing. Two times from the lips of Jesus. He's seeking sinners. We alluded to or talked about Zacchaeus a couple of weeks ago. Luke chapter 19. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. Remember? Jesus is coming through Zacchaeus' town. He sees him in the tree. He calls Zacchaeus down. They go to his house. Jesus had come to save Zacchaeus, who was an outcast. John 14, 23. God is seeking true worshipers, Jesus says. For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. What's the context of John chapter 4? 
I love how that chapter begins. It says, Jesus must needs go through Samaria. Why does He have to go through Samaria? It's not geographically necessary. In fact, most Jews would never go through Samaria to get to Galilee. They would never go through Samaria. Why does He go through Samaria? Because He has a divine appointment with the woman at the well. This immoral woman. Jesus came through Samaria to pick her up in one sense. In a spiritual sense. He came through to save one of His sheep. It's a beautiful, beautiful truth. Two more breathtaking things happened in Genesis chapter 3. God spoke a prophecy regarding the promised Messiah. That's verse 15. And then God shed blood as He provided garments of skin for Adam and Eve. That's verse 21. So let's get this straight. Adam and Eve and you and I created the two fundamental tragedies in the cosmos. We have profaned God and now we are perishing. Jesus, or pardon me, God says, the day you eat thereof, you shall what? Surely die. So we have profaned God in disobeying His Word and we are perishing. So right in the midst of Genesis 3, God begins, and we've talked about this many times, God begins to lay the groundwork for a Messiah. A Messiah who would address these two tragedies in the cosmos. In Genesis chapter 3, immediately after we fall, God begins to talk about a Savior. And I love how God says this in Isaiah 45. I just got to read it to you. Isaiah 45, 21 and 22. God says, There is no other God besides Me, a righteous God and... He says it about Himself, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except Me. Turn to Me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. God is a Savior. He's not simply a judge who executes perfect righteousness and all equity as I read from the Psalms earlier. He is a God who shows unfathomable grace and mercy to rebels. So, this is our next sermon in our We Get To series. We get to tell the world about this Savior. We get to do that. We get to bring good news to the world. It's why you're in Milan. It's why you're in the neighborhood you live in. It's why you're at the workplace you work at. It's why you're at the university that you, you attend. You are a witness there. That's why God has placed you in that unique place. You think, no, I'm just here for a job. I'm just here for... No, I tell you all the time, you're here on God. If you're a Christian, you're here on God's errand. And the errand that we always have as believers is we are witnesses. We give a witness to this awesome Savior God who should just send us to hell but who 
is saving us from our sin. So I'm going to go down the list of all the privileges we've been talking about the last nine weeks. You say, Jim, why do you keep going down this list? Because I don't want you to ever forget these are privileges that you get to do, nobody else gets to do. In the same sense that you get to do it. Meaning, you get to do it according to the word of truth, which means it's meaningful in the eyes of God. I don't want you to forget. Remember our first one, we get to pray. I know the rest of I know most of the rest of the world prays, but we actually pray to the living God. We actually pray to a God who hears and a God who answers. The rest of the world is praying to false gods. There's one God. His name is Jesus Christ. We pray to Him. We get to sit in His lap and talk to Him and listen to Him and learn to love His sovereign will for us as Jesus taught us in the garden. We get to worship. God is our treasure and God is our pleasure. Worship is not simply attending church. All of life is worship. We get to obey. We get to obey because God is a promise keeper. John 14.21 is true. When we obey, we get disclosure. Jesus is always giving Himself to the disciple who is prosecuting obedience in His life. We get to believe. We get to believe unbelievable things. Not only about this life, but the next. We get to believe it all because our God is God. He will not leave one thing left undone. And I, I know this is true because I was a young Christian at one time. <laughs> there are places where I was afraid to obey. But I have to tell you, I'm an old guy now. I've walked through that. I've learned that lesson. You can obey Him everywhere. Everywhere. In fact, you should obey Him everywhere. If you don't obey Him everywhere, you lose. He doesn't lose. You lose. You can obey the Lord because He is a promise keeper. We get to believe. We get to suffer. We talked a lot about it. We get to suffer. If we're a Christian, the New Testament tells us if you're a Christian and you desire to live godly, you will suffer. But we will overcome in God. We get to be holy. Holiness is not a drag. Holiness is walking in intimacy and tasting the beauty of God. We get to give. We get to radically give. We get to radically give. You can't stop a true Christian from giving and supporting the church. It's what we do. We are bullish on the kingdom of God. We love and serve the body. We don't just date the church. We are all in with the church. We commit to the church. We bring our tithes. We bring our offerings. We bring our gifts and our talents and our skills into the church. We don't date the church. We are married to her. Last week we talked about the fact that we get the truth. Nobody else on the earth has the truth. <coughs> truth is not a concept. Truth, Jesus says, I am the truth. We get the truth. We get the truth. God spoke light and life and truth into our cold, dead hearts. We saw it last week. And this week, 
The tenth privilege is that we get to be the witnesses of God. We get to tell the good news of great joy as the angels sang when Jesus was born. God is profaned and men are perishing, but we get to speak into those tragedies. We get to speak truth into those tragedies. It's why you are still here. I tell you this probably every week, right? It's very much better to be with Jesus, as the Apostle Paul says. So why has He left us here? If it's very much better to be in heaven, why has He left us here? So you can get rich and famous and make lots of money and have some more babies and buy a big house and... and, and no! You may get to do some of those things because God is good. God just gives and gives and gives. But the only reason a Christian is still walking the planet is that you would be His witness. And that's what I'm talking about tonight. Some of you are not taking this seriously. You want to call yourself a Christian, but then you won't go out that door and you won't be His witness. I have to say to you, if you won't be His witness, you have every reason to question your salvation experience. We are saved to be His witness. It's what Christians do in the world. It's why we're here. You know what an intervention is, right? It's when loved ones confront um, someone they care about in the family. Usually it's concerning some kind of addiction, alcohol, drugs, uh, an eating disorder, pornography. And, 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 the, and the friends and family, they see the destructive effects it's having on your life and they, 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 they intervene. I looked up the word intervene, a couple of synonyms. Uh, they, they interfere, they, they get involved and they intrude themselves into your life. It's what we see on the pages of Scripture. Right? It's what God is doing. God is conducting an intervention. We are hooked on sin. We are hooked on self-absorption and self-love and pleasure and comfort and ease. And God is intervening. God is profaned and men are perishing and God has intervened. From Genesis 3 on, it's what the whole Bible is about. It's a massive divine intervention. God has come to save His people. And this is where you and I come in. Yeah, we're part of the intervention now. We've come to know Jesus. We're part of the intervention. We are, we are getting involved in, in, in the lives of our family members and, and, and colleagues and neighbors. We're being used of God to intervene. We're bringing the truth into their lives. I'm always amazed at how few Christians really understand this is why they're here. It's the principal reason you're still here. It's to be a witness to be a witness. Beloved, it's why you're here. If you're a Christian tonight, it's why you are on, still on the planet. Some believe God has come to simply give us the promise of eternal life. Biblical Christianity is not only about the next life, it's about being radically changed in this life and then telling everyone who will listen about it. 
we become His witnesses. Some believe God has come to simply give us health, wealth, and prosperity. Obviously, that's incorrect. Biblical Christianity is not focused on temporal blessing. We are radically focused on eternal reward that comes through us being His witnesses as our lives radically change and the truth pours out of us. Not only through our speech, but through our deeds. I told you one time, and you probably don't remember, it's been some time, but my favorite title of a book of the Bible. Does anybody remember my favorite title of a book of the Bible? Anybody remember what it is? Well, it's got to be yours too, right? Unless you, you, you might have a better idea than me. You come tell me because I want to know. But my favorite title of a book of the Bible is Acts. Right? Acts. They did the Word. Right? They did the Word. They were witnesses to the Word. That's what Acts is about. It's what the whole New Testament is about. Jesus has come. Bam! I've got to tell everybody I know. Right? That's what the New Testament is about. It's what your jo- that's your job description as a Christian. I'm a witness first. That's what I do first. That's the first thing on my job description. I am my Savior's witness. The men of Acts, the men and women of Acts, they didn't simply coast through life merely thankful for that they had eternal life. And they didn't seek to use Jesus as a good luck charm for temporal blessing. They acted on the words of Jesus Christ and they were His witnesses. Sometimes it appears to me from my vantage point that some people believe just attending church when it's not too inconvenient is what it means to be a Christian. (laughs) It, It couldn't be further from the truth. That couldn't be further from that proposition couldn't be further from the truth. Being a Christian is being a witness. It's what we do, it's who we are. It's a great privilege, beloved. I remember I got stopped one time here in Italy before I'd gotten my Italian driver's license, right? And I was way past my, what was it, six months or a year, I forget now. And, you know, I was just being rebellious because I resented the fact that I had to take a driving test. I'm 45 years old, right? Back then. 46 or 7. Whatever it was, I resented it. Come on! Why should I have to take a driving exam? And the guy stopped me. He said, are you an ambassador? I thought about it. Because I am. Right, Bertha? Bertha knows. I am an ambassador. That's my full-time job. I'm an ambassador for Jesus Christ in a dead and dying and judged world. So, I didn't. I said, no, I owned it. And you're not going to believe what? He let me go. He said, go pass your exam. I said, yes, sir, I will. And with God's help, I did. So what's our job? Matthew 28, 19, and 20. You know this great verse. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
This is who we are. This is what real Christians do. This is at the top of our list. I'm, making, I'm, make, I'm a witness and I'm making disciples. It's what I do. Yes, I love my wife and I love my husband and I, I love my kids. They're all part of the witness. Yes, I, I, I want to be a, a good friend at the university, but that's being part of my witness, right? I want to be a, an excellent employee. That's part of my witness. Yeah, you should be the best employee the company has because you do your labor as unto God, right? Your labor is an offering to the Lord. And then you, you heard the text that Blessing read. The last thing Jesus said to His men was what? You be My witnesses all over the world. So whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you do, if you're a Christian, you're to be a witness. It's that simple. It's really that simple. It's absolutely that simple. So we speak truth into the two principal tragedies in the cosmos. God is profane, but He is glorified in Jesus Christ as Jesus saves a people for the glory of His name. And men are perishing. But we offer eternal life through the finished work of Jesus Christ. We speak truth into both ultimate tragedies. We always have something to say. We never don't have anything to say. We can always speak into any tragedy. We can always speak the truth of God into any tragedy. So we are His witnesses I looked up the word witness. It means to have personal... Let me ask you. Okay, you test yourself. Do you have personal knowledge of Jesus? That's what it means to be a witness. One, the first thing. Do you have personal knowledge of Jesus? John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they may know you. Do you know Him? The second thing it means, it means that you furnish evidence that the Gospel is real. Does your lifestyle furnish evidence that the Gospel is real? Can someone, disinterested third party, watch your life for a year and realize the Gospel must be true because how she lives, right? Third thing, do you serve as evidence that the Gospel is true? Is your life evidence that the Gospel is true? Are your words evidence that the Gospel is true? The way you love your spouse, the way you raise your kids, the way you do your work? Lastly, does your life attest to the fact that Jesus Christ is God and nobody else is. This is what it means to be a witness. You guys remember 1 Peter 3.15? We preached through that book uh, some years ago now. But I love this great verse. Listen to it. Peter says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks. Are you ready to make a defense? Listen, he continues. Of everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence, can people see the hope of God in you? And do they ask you about it? People should be asking you this. You know, you're out in the world. You live different. You look different. You speak different. You smell like God. That aroma is on you. The aroma of Jesus is on you, right? <laughs> people should be asking you. What is this hope that you have? 
You don't live like the rest of the world. You don't act like the rest of the world. You don't worry about every little thing that comes down the pike. You, how can you process life like this? Are you ready to give an account of the hope that is within you? Beloved, this is an awesome thing. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Peter's first thought here. He says, regarding sanctifying Christ as Lord in your heart, Peterson says, keep your hearts at attention. I'm going to ask you, is your heart at attention? Keep your hearts at attention in adoration of Jesus Christ, your Master. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> that's how, beloved, that's how we stay, that's how we stay on point, Right? By stoking the love affair with Jesus. How do you stoke the love affair with Jesus? How do you stoke it? By surfing the internet for endless hours and searching and playing with Facebook and Twitter and blah, 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 and watching endless reruns on Netflix or whatever you guys do. I don't know. I don't know what you do. But how do you stay on point with God? You know how you do it. Spending time with Him. Spending time in His Word. Spending time in prayer. It's how you stay on point. So, is your heart at attention in your adoration of Jesus? Beloved, that's where your witness begins. It begins in the love affair. If you don't have a love affair, you have no witness. No meaningful witness. You can parrot words. But if you don't love Jesus Christ, you have no meaningful witness in the world. You are just like some other dead religion out in the world speaking. Our lives are to be our opening argument in evangelism. I love this. Your life is to be your opening argument in your evangelism. I think that's why much of our evangelism falls flat. It's because we, we try to tell it before we ever own it and live it. What I'm saying to you is that love affair is the beginning of your evangelism. As one old saint said, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. So doctrinal arguments about our hope in God are necessary. Lifestyles that reveal our hope in God, that, it, that it's real, is indispensable. Of course we need to be biblically literate and knowledgeable. Of course we do. But you can't stop there. You have to incarnate it in the world. And the world is supposed to see it. And the world is supposed to marvel and or hate you for it. <laughs> These are the two responses you get in the world. According to the New Testament. So I'm going to challenge you on something here tonight. Um, you know, what I like to do when I meet somebody new is I always like to ask them about how they became a Christian and a I say, share, share with me your testimony. And I, I get all kinds of muddled, confused, and unclear responses. And so I lovingly tonight as your pastor, I challenge you to be ready to speak clearly about your conversion. You say, Jim... Um, I've never really taken the time to you know, get that down in a concise manner. Do it. God says, be ready to give an account. And if your testimony is muddled and confused, then you're not going to give a very good account. 
And one thing I've noticed in many testimonies is you'll find denominational uh, error in them. You know, you'll hear things like, well, I received Jesus as my Savior when I was eight, but I didn't make Him Lord until I was 28. I have to tell you from first-hand experience, that's, that's not biblically intelligible. That's not how it happens. It never happens like that. You don't get to have Him as Savior and not have Him as Lord. You can't divorce Savior from Lord. You're either in relationship with Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, or you're not in relationship with Him at all. This is important, beloved. You need to have a testimony that's biblically accurate and understandable. It should be concise. It should be crisp. You should be ready to give an account of the hope that is within you. And if you're not ready, I'm challenging you tonight, go home and pray about it and start working on it so you can, you know, bam, give it to them in three minutes. In a powerful way. God commands you to be ready to make a defense. And so I'm going to ask you, are you ready? Are you ready to give a defense of the account or an account of the hope that is within you? If not, I challenge you, go home this week. Write it down. Get it tight. Make sure it makes sense from what the Bible says. And if you have questions, email me. Call me. I'll try to help you. Beloved, we are to be His witnesses. And let me, let me say one thing about your witness, your testimony. Don't make it all about you. <laughs> Remember, we talked last week about all that God had done before you ever heard the name of Jesus, right? All the big, beautiful, mysterious, divine stuff that was going on before you ever heard the name Jesus. So don't forget God in your testimony. Give God the glory. Don't make it all about you. Yes, of course you're involved. and you, you, you exercise the faith. You exercise repentance. But don't make it all about you. Bring glory and honor to the Lord in it. So John Piper is right. There are two foundational uh, tragedies in the world. God is profaned and men are perishing. God's intervention is addressing those two tragedies. And if you are a Christian tonight, you are His witness <coughs> in addressing those two tragedies. You are here to do Matthew eight nineteen and 20. You are here to make disciples and to teach them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. You are here to do Acts 1.8. You are here to be Christ's witness in the world. You are here to do 1 Peter 3.15. You are to be ready to make a defense for the hope that is in you. Everything else comes is a big number two down here. So, as you know, this Sunday is traditionally called Palm Sunday. Why is it called Palm Sunday? You know the story, right? It's the Sunday that Jesus rides in to Jerusalem on a donkey. Why is God on a donkey? It's an intervention, right? 
Let me just read the text to you and uh, from John 12, 12 through 15. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to, to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet Him. And they began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, He sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your King is coming, seated on a donkey's coat. Why is... God riding a donkey into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago because God has been profaned and men are perishing. Some of you will remember the Luke account. The Pharisees told Jesus, have your, have your disciples to stop chanting this about, about Jesus being the King and being, being the Messiah and being the Savior. Stop your people from chanting these things. Who knows what Jesus said to them? Anybody remember? It's one of my favorite uh, things Jesus ever said uh, in, in this part of the narrative. Remember what He said? He says, if they don't speak, what's going to happen? The rocks are going to cry out. The rocks will cry out. God has been profaned and men are perishing and if they don't shout the truth, the rocks will shout it. So I'm going to challenge you not to be bested by a rock anymore. You go out in the world, you call yourself a Christian, right? And I don't assume everybody in here is a Christian. I never assume that. I assume that some of you are churchgoers or cultural Christians, but you, you've never really come into deep saving relationship with Christ. Of course, you can tonight. It's your choice. But go out there and be a witness. Many call as we prepare for next Sunday. Let me just close this way. Many call Palm Sunday the triumphal entry of Jesus. I've always hated, I've always hated this. I've never liked this. If you actually read the Luke account, <laughs> Luke 19.41 says, and Jesus approached the city and He wept over it. What you have here is a bereaved God coming to address the fact that God has been profaned and men are perishing. The triumphal entry of Jesus is still future to us. And that's how I want to close the sermon tonight. You guys will be familiar with this famous text. It's Revelation 19. I'm just going to pick up and read verse 11. Revelation 19.11. And I'm done. John says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Verse 15. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it He may smite the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. 
And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Beloved, you get to be a witness to this great warrior, shepherd, king, God. And I say shame on you and shame on me if we waste one more day being timid about it. Let's be who we're called to be. And I'm done. I was, we were driving to church tonight. This is just free stuff right here. <clears throat> we were driving to church tonight. You know, back in the States, most, we don't have many Americans in here. Uh, but in the States, it's like everybody shows up for church on Easter, right? I don't know what it's like where you live. Everybody shows up for church on Easter. Usually Easter and Christmas, right? And uh, it's not like that here. Everybody goes, everybody leaves. <laughs> everybody travels over Easter. So, you know, come next week if you can because it'll be a small group, I'm sure. Um, and I told Karen, I was driving in. I was just on my mind. I said, you know, if I was at home and I was a preaching in your average church, in your average church, maybe, what, 300 people, but on Easter, there's 1,000 And I would say to them, don't come back here anymore. You can't love Christ and show up twice a year. It's an oxymoron. Just, if you've ever studied Malachi chapter 1, you, you go look, God just says, just shut it down! Stop! uselessly kindling fire on my altar. Stop playing a game with me. Beloved, it's... God hates games. He hates facade. He hates pretense. So, I, wanna, I said that to say this. Let's enter into deep worship and rejoicing that our God has loved us like this. Our God has saved us like this. And if your plans allow, I know some of you will be traveling. If your plans allow, come next week and join us as we remember the price He paid for us and we remember that the grave could not hold Him. We are witnesses to this God. It's a great, great, Great privilege. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Thank you for this gospel, Father. Thank you for the blunt truth of it. No one ever need be confused. <laughs> about the biblical message. Lord, I pray for each soul in this room, for I am sure there are some who do not know You. I pray that You would grant the spirit of repentance.
Father, I pray for the one that's here and who has become distracted with the world. I pray that they would turn and look at You and love You all the more. And I pray for the one who is a radical witness. I pray that You'll continue to give them the faith and the courage and the boldness to be what You've called them to be. Lord, we are all in need in this regard. We all fail. But You give grace and mercy and forgiveness. Thank You, Father, that You deal with us this way. Help us to be Your witnesses in the world. Lord God, we pray. May our lives magnify Jesus. May our lives give evidence to the fact that the Gospel is real and Jesus is God and nobody else is. We praise You, Lord. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Let me speak our benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. Go in peace this week and be a witness. Be His witness. God has been profaned. You speak into it. Men are perishing. You speak into it. You go speak the truth that God has entrusted with you and make disciples in the world. God bless. Have a great week. You're dismissed.